Welcome to the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andrea Center, the sponsor of the In All Things podcast. This is the inaugural episode of the podcast, and so we have some great things coming your way. We have a feature conversation with author Tish Harrison Warren about prayer and about waiting for God, and we are giving away five copies of Tish's new book, Prayer in the Night, for those who follow and subscribe to our podcast. So stay tuned to find out how you can be entered in that drawing. We also have a chat with Shannon Vischer, the director of the Andrea Center, about the vision of In All Things and the plan for this podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Not long ago, an atheist ad campaign put this phrase on public transportation in London. There's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. To stop worrying, we could probably add stop watching, stop waiting. Indeed, Czech theologian Thomas Halleck provocatively suggests that atheists are not wrong. They are just impatient. They are simply those who have grown tired of waiting, and they want to resolve the apparent absence of God by slamming the door of belief instead of enduring the experience. But believers also wrestle with God's apparent silence. We wrestle with God's inaction and God's delay. When you live with faith, it doesn't do away with that experience, the experience of absence. Rather, faith changes how you experience it. Faith, Halleck writes, is fundamentally patience with God, grounded on the conviction that the experience of absence is not the deepest reality. But what does this look like in practice? What does it mean to watch and wait for God? To help us with this question, we welcome Tish Harrison Warren to the In All Things podcast. Tish Harrison Warren is a priest in the Anglican Church of North America, and she is the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which was Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year. And she is also the author of this new book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep, with InterVarsity Press, published this year. Tish, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to open with the story that you start the book with that finds you bleeding and surrounded by nurses and telling your husband, I want to pray Compline. And I wrote, wow, in the margin, because that would probably not be the thought that I would have in that sort of a situation. And I think for many Christians, especially from low church traditions, the idea of praying, as you put it, someone else's prayers feels foreign. And so can you tell us a little bit about that prayer, uh, the Compline prayer that you wanted to pray, and why it brought you such tremendous relief at that moment? Yeah. Well, um, so what I was asking for when I said pray Compline was um, the Anglican nighttime prayer service. And so it's actually a collection of several different prayers, many different prayers, and the reading of a psalm and confession of sin and the Lord's Prayer. And it's the last prayers that Anglicans pray in a day. Typically, it's nighttime prayers. And Compline has a long history. Christians have been praying it since the early, early church. We have evidence from at least the third century. There was instructions on how to pray. Christians would get up 
usually they would actually, instead of it just being the last prayer of the day, they would rise from their beds. They would get up at around midnight and pray. And we see that practice continue with with monks, right? And to do these like night vigils at night, um, praying throughout the night. So in Anglican and also Catholic and Lutheran, other various liturgical traditions, now they have um, a collection of nighttime prayers. And the prayers themselves are asking for safety or asking for sleep, but also a real acknowledgement of vulnerability and sickness and harm, like dangers in the night, asking for spiritual protection, uh, remembering the dying. There's a real connection in all of Christian tradition between sleep and death for because they're, you know, in some ways similar, right? And so it's really sort of pulling that out or reminding us of our mortality and then asking Jesus to be our light in the middle of that, to be the light in the darkness and to be our protector and to be our sustainer. So I had prayed Compline on and off for a few years at this point, not every day, but pretty often. And, and increasingly, like in 2017, I, I'd started sort of coming back and praying Compline more and more often. Uh, and sort of actually kind of the end of 2016 and then 2017. So at this point, I had those prayers memorized. That moment in the hospital, I mean, I'm sur- I was surprised too that I, I say in the book, like this was weird, like even for me, like it's not like often in emergency situations, I'm like, get out the prayer book. Um, <laughs> but we had prayed on the way to the hospital, you know, my husband had uttered just free form prayers or non-liturgical prayers. You know, he was at, just saying like, God, help us, like save us. So why did I ask for it at that moment? I don't know. I mean, I had no idea at the time that this would end up in a book. There was chaos around me, right? Right. It was bleeding intensely. And I felt like I, I wanted to know that this moment was part of the redemption story. Like the, the God was present in the emergency room as my baby was dead as I was bleeding and didn't know what was going to happen and had to have surgery. And they didn't know if I was going to have to have a blood transfusion or not. And like things, we didn't know how things would be. I I mean, I certainly wanted God to save my life and make me well. Um, But I wanted more than that, honestly, like I wanted to know that God saw me in the middle of this and loved me and that this was somehow not like spiraling out of the, the out of control or out of his care. I needed to pray. And I knew I had, I didn't know how to pray then. Like there were nurses all around me and I didn't know how to like, I didn't know how to pray. And so it was just, it was this way of like reaching for a reality bigger than the moment that I was in. And because I'd memorized these prayers and it was, it was nighttime. Like it was, it was probably near midnight at this point. So my husband was there and I just said like, I let's pray Compline. And we, as I was bleeding, uh, just, he walked me through Compline and, um, and I prayed. The wonderful thing about that image is, you know, almost this idea in, Cognition, they talk about 4E cognition, where cognition is extended. 
you know, beyond your individual mind, right? You have access to other resources. When you say, for example, to your spouse, help me remember this, you're sort of extending your cognition beyond your own resources in a sense. And this sense of you reaching out, extended communion almost, extended beyond your own resources uh, in that moment that you didn't have enough resources, but there were others who had resources for you, uh, other words to, to offer. That's actually such a good analogy. Nobody has said that. And I might steal that. I'll try to give you credit for it. But (laughs) it was, that's exactly a great way to explain it is it was like I was saying to the church and to my husband who was praying this with me at the time, like, help me to remember this. That's what I was saying. This moment is is scary. It's, it's um, sad. It's, uh, it feels chaotic and like, help, help me to remember what's true. And that's exactly what was happening. It was like, I'm too weary. I'm, I'm too broken to like, get there on my own. Can you help me remember? And it was a way to ask the broader church in that moment to help me remember. Yeah, that connects to the the, the question I want to ask next, which is uh, connected to something you wrote on page 31. You said, uh, when I could not pray, the church said, hear our prayers. When I could not believe, the church said, come to the table and be fed. When I could not worship, the church sang over me the language of faith. And I love this passage and the way that you're describing this right now, because I think that rather than thinking of faith as all of these things that we sort of have figured out and hold on to triumphantly in the face of adversity, it really portrays faith and worship in the church as these things that hold us. And in our tradition, which I mean the, the Reformed tradition, my, my own tradition, for example, we've struggled to get free of a way of looking at communion that focuses on our own subjective self-examination, where we always are kind of examining ourselves and trying to wonder if we're worthy to take communion and we never feel fit for it. Uh, Rather than, I think, approaching communion in a way that revels in the objectivity of the embrace of of the gospel. And so I wanted to ask, how does your ecclesiology um, as an Anglican actually perhaps release you from some of the anxiety that attends more individualistic expressions of faith that we see where we're always thinking about, is my faith okay? Do I believe enough? Or do I, do you understand this sort of assurance question? I, I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, I grew up Southern Baptist and I love my Southern Baptist brethren. So if you're listening, um, I love you. And there's so many good things that I still, particularly the hymnody of the Baptist church, but, uh, but there are things too, like a, a deep commitment to Bible study and, and things like that. But I say all that because I'm about to push back on the Baptists a little bit because it, it was so focused, even the notion of salvation was completely hinged on an event where you come to ardent enough belief and walk down the aisle and give your life to Jesus. People would say, when were you saved? And it was like, when did you decide this commitment? Right. And, uh, and I believe in conversion. I do. I think we have conversion moments and, and we need to be converted. We do. That's real. And we need repentance. That's real. But it it places the onus so much on us, right? This is more reformed, but in reformed circles, you know, when I became a Presbyterian, it was like, when are you saved? You know, 33 AD <laughs> or even right bef- in the, <laughs> before the foundation of the world. Right. So the point of those sort of little, little snarky kind of responses is to push back against our understanding of salvation being kind of like this thing I did, this decision I made, but extending that, I think 
as an Anglican receiving grace is this thing that we like give to little babies, like in baptism, right? Like they, they, they can't offer anything. They can't self-examine like, and they're, they're welcomed into the family, right? As, as this part of the church, the Eucharist extended to folks, even children. I mean, really, honestly, like babies can receive um, the Eucharist if, if you want. And, um, the Anglican church, because we don't separate the sacraments. So really, as soon as someone is baptized in most Anglican churches, the Anglicanism is, is a big tent, but they can receive the sacraments. So you're receiving these means of grace before you really could possibly understand the, what the mercy that you're receiving because of that, it, First of all, there's a few things like this isn't exactly about individualism, but but it is to some extent because it's saying God is extending his mercy to this people and you get to be part of it. Right. And of course, at some point, someone can choose to leave that people and to like reject that. But um, if you don't reject it, if you don't walk away from it, like you're you just get this mercy from the Lord through these means of grace. So in that sense, faith seems like this thing, this room sort of outside of us that we are allowed into this reality, like God is doing this stuff and we're allowed to participate in it. We're, we're allowed to be recipients of it. We're allowed in this room by grace. And and not something that's sort of not a, um, a building I construct on my own. You know, it was something that the, the truth of Christianity is, is before me, beyond me, it will continue after me. And I can enter this, right? As opposed to this is something that I sort of hew out of my own kind of sense of belief. But I also think the part of the, the sort of a ballast, I think, to individualism that you can see in some lower church places is um, a real notion that I'm deeply connected with, that the story that Jesus is telling is a story that throughout time, with real people throughout his church, that the biography of Jesus, which, you know, we, we see in the gospels, continues now through the Holy Spirit's work through his people, but it has for thousands of years and it will until Christ comes. We we are part of God's long faithful work in the church. Before us come many believers that God has sustained the gospel through the deposit of faith and they failed in ways, but but God's been working. And so getting to sort of step in and be part of that, just this sort of reality, like when I say faith, I mean like Christian truth the story of the gospel and and the story of God's work on earth through the church is this reality outside of me that I get to partake in by grace. I'm wondering, you know, you say in the book that faith is more craft than feeling, and maybe this is a connection here. If an individualistic conception of Christianity that focused more on internal feelings and internal states and making sure that those are right. Not that feelings are not important, but you say that it's more craft than feeling. I wonder if you could say more about that, you know, if it is a craft and in keeping with your idea of, you know, there's all these other people who also practice this craft and we're 
doing this together and connected to each other as, as we do it. Can you say more about that idea of prayer as craft? Um, yeah. So I, d- I don't mean that like, you know, the Christian faith is something we do or we earn or, you know, we can be sure. good at or bad at like, like people are good or bad at painting or something. But I do mean that we, we can kind of show up and participate in these practices of faith, whether we feel like it or not. And they act back on us. They shape us. I mean, I'll use writing because that's what I know the most about. But I mean, I, I have an example from this week. I had a deadline. I did not feel like writing this piece, but there was a deadline. So I just did the work. I just showed up. I started writing. And then grace, like this mercy, like things came. It wasn't like, and, and everything was perfect about writing, but but I, when I showed up and started writing, like more came than I thought I had, like the more truth was on the page than I possess. Mm-hmm. So there was mercy through this experience, but I didn't feel like doing it. And I wasn't, I wasn't particularly in, in love with writing at the moment. And this totally goes back to the individualism thing that you were talking about and sort of self-examination. Um, and I'm all for self-examination. I really, really am like the Ignatian exercises and, and examining the self is super important part of the Christian faith. But I will say, I remember I felt like in college in my early twenties, I always was kind of like taking my spiritual temperature too often. It, it felt like I was always sort of like, you know, like, like needing to be like in love with Jesus or like in a deep despair, like, like struggling. There was, there was almost a bipolarity to, to faith in the sense of like, you're like growing and it's exciting and you're, you're like, or, you know, or you're not. And it just, it felt like it, that's an immature kind of way of understanding faith, where you're just sort of like constantly self-evaluating. Yeah. Um, because the reality is like, and what I want people to know who are reading this book is the ardentness, that the fervor of our faith will wax and wane. That's a really normal part of the Christian life. What I mean is that instead of kind of constantly taking our spiritual temperature or it being about us and sort of how we subjectively feel about how we're doing as a Christian, it can really be about walking into this, to these means of grace and to the things that God is doing in the world and, and participating in that. And maybe that feels exciting and real and God feels close and maybe not at all the time, but nevertheless, God is at work. Like there's this reality outside of us. And so I think what I mean is let's, let's take a painter. They don't all constantly are like, how do I feel about painting? Am I like, is this, is this giving me life? Is this not like, what do I do? Like there is just some sense of, no, you just enter this craft and over time it shapes and forms you. And, and I feel like there, when I wrote, this book, there are times of kind of doubt and a sense of God's distance, but that doesn't mean this isn't real or this isn't true. And so we can kind of continue in this way of faith, knowing that it's going to really take a lifetime for us to be formed as followers of Jesus, that it takes, it takes 
the, our whole lives, however God, long God gives us, uh, and maybe maybe even after that, to continue to be formed to be people capable of worship, true worship. Yeah. And part of the analogy of craft um, that I take away from it is that sense of intentionality and a patience, you know, sort of that patience with the work and allowing the work to sort of unfold over time through the ups and and the downs. It does seem to me that this book is a book about waiting. One of the quotes that I love and I'll use to introduce uh, this interview on uh, for the episode is is something by Thomas Halleck, who's a Czech priest. And he says that, you know, perhaps atheists are not wrong. They're just impatient and they want to slam the door of belief rather than enduring it. But, you know, divine delay, divine absence is a truthful experience that's shared also by believers. And he says, faith doesn't mean that you don't have that experience of waiting, but it does change the way that you wait. And so I wonder, what would you say are the things that it changes about that experience of absence or hiddenness or divine delay uh, or darkness uh, that you write about in your book? Gosh, that's such a good question. Part of what the life of faith, like what Christianity affirms, is that when we're talking about waiting and the and the sense of the absence of God in particular in that, there's a deep sense of longing right? There's a deep sense of like, things are not right and we want them to be set right. There's a frustration even as part of that frustration and anger, maybe even at God of, of the way things are. And I think one of the beautiful gifts of, of the Christian story is that it says, yes, like that's right. That's true. That's right to feel that if materialism is all there is and and all there is is kind of just you know what we can taste touch and smell and feel it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense there's not a transcendent meaning to our longing we're longing for something more but there isn't anything more right it's uh we're sort of all waiting on godot right like we're sort of all waiting on something that's not coming and so um, any kind of longing you have for something more um, is a trick of the mind or something that you need to like find the right product or relationship um, to fulfill because there's nothing else coming. Mm. Whereas the Christian story would say, no longing is true. Like there's truth in it. Mm. We are made for something more than this. The longing that we have isn't, isn't a trick it's it's not a delusion it's it's real because we are made for um a world where injustice doesn't rage where children don't suffer Mm. um so it's not a a silly kind of childish dream that to have that it's actually truth it's deeply human that that deeply human cross-cultural longing for things to be made right is because we're made for something more. And so even just that affirmation is so, so beautiful and such a gift, but ultimately the absence of God, this, this suffering, like I talk in the book about, we are waiting for God to set things right for Jesus to make all things new, that we want action on the part of God. We want the renewal and redemption of all things. We're longing for consummation would be the Mm. Christian phrase. 
And so that is what we are waiting for and longing for. And and that's, I think, what the Czech priest, I don't remember his name, said. Alec, yeah. Atheists are sort of cutting short, right? Is saying that's that's not coming or stop waiting. Or mm-hmm. the reason that we can wait for that is because of the resurrection. So our what we're longing for in the future is based in something in the past. Yeah. And the only the the evidence that that's not just kind of religious delusion is that we believe that there was a real stone that rolled away like that that actually in materiality death was defeated and so that's really the only evidence we have that the strong don't just win that those with the most power the most wealth those who can dominate the weak that they don't win it's the only evidence we have that disease and death don't have the final say because the evidence of the world is that um, the weak suffer and the strong are, are never judged or never have to face justice. And that, that we're living through this, right? 2020 and 2021, that coronavirus has the final word that, um, that, all of us will die and and that's the end. The only evidence that there is meaning to that, that there's like transcendence, that there's hope actually, you know, that love does actually win, that there's um that there's justice and righteousness that is real is is in the res in the hope of the resurrection. Yeah. So we banter around in culture like love wins, right? It's a common thing, but what's the evidence of that if Jesus is not risen from the grave? Like really, what's the evidence that love wins? I don't know. I I, I don't see a lot of evidence for that. I just have one more question and it kind of relates to something you have mentioned. You do talk about waiting in your first book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, and waiting there is much more mundane, uh, waiting in traffic, for example. And then Mm -hmm. in this book, it's much more waiting for, you know, in in the midst of grief of deep, in in the face of deep loss. And, um, you know, I think during COVID-19, well, there are a lot lot have suffered incredible grief, uh, and then others have suffered what we might call quiet grief. Uh, which seemed comparatively small compared to the suffering of others. And yet the quiet groups really still shape us deeply. And so my last question is about grieving appropriately. How do you allow yourself to grieve when you know that there are others who have lost so much more? How do you name and walk with those quieter griefs, more mundane, Mm -hmm. perhaps griefs? There's lots of people who have suffered and are suffering so much more. How do you hold those things in tension? Well, it's just pretty unhelpful to try to compare our sorrow to other people's sorrow. I don't want to take that so far. I certainly don't want to say, hey, your house burned down and I lost $10 today. Like we both have things to grieve, right? But uh, so I'm not trying, I'm certainly not in any way, do not hear me saying that sorrow or that suffering is spread evenly, right? I talk about this in the book with, and when I talk about the afflicted, like it's not like suffering is this like evenly spread thing, but all of us do have loss and grief and minimizing our own loss and grief because it's less than others or, or seems, or is smaller than others. Isn't actually helpful. It first of all, doesn't actually help those that are suffering for us to minimize it, but also 
those are real losses. As I, I mean, as I said, like that there's truth in our sense of disappointment and anger and, and longing. It, there's truth that in um, broken relationships, that there's loss, right? I mean, it may not be the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child, but a broken relationship with a friend hurts. You know, my first book is kind of all about if we're, if we're never open to sort of like seeing God, or if we're, if we're not usually open to seeing God in our everyday sort of life, we're always kind of waiting for a big experience or we're waiting for like, when we'll meet God or the ideal circumstances or some either an emotional experience or some other kind of life where we'll meet God. And I think it's the same with loss. We, I think a chief way we encounter Jesus is in suffering and we share in, in Jesus's suffering through suffering. Like we meet him in suffering. And if we're always waiting until our suffering is big enough to count, mm. then we're meet, we're missing all of these ways that God actually wants to meet us in our everyday life, in our everyday suffering, in our smaller suffering of broken relationships and, and health struggles and um, frustrations with our job and employment and, you know, being trapped inside our house during COVID. I think we can balance that with deep gratitude that, you know, we are alive and, um, for those of us who haven't lost very close family members, right? That there's there's gratitude for that. And yet we have to very intentionally, I think, make space and and time and be open to grieving our losses, however small they may feel, because they're real, because they're true, and because God wants to meet us in those small places. I mean, one of the amazing, beautiful things about the incarnation is that it reminds us that Jesus doesn't just meet us in these kind of like, you know, intense spiritual moments or some kind of um, crisis situation, but in the everyday of our life. And that includes, um, we're just going to experience lots of loss before we end up, before our life ends. And some of that'll be huge. You know, the, those kinds of losses that our whole life is divided before and after those kinds of deep traumas, but most of it will be smaller struggles, right. Of, with the brokenness of the world, but it doesn't make it less true. And if we're, if we can only meet God, if we don't learn to sort of grieve these losses in the smaller moments of our life, we're not going to know how to grieve with Jesus and how to lament with Jesus when, when the big, big stuff comes. Right. So I talk in the book about um, weeping and the, just, I've really come to see grief as a spiritual practice. Right. And so learning to grieve the loss that we have, or that it's more like when grief, when you do feel grief, on, on a Wednesday about, man, like this has been a hard year. Staying inside has been hard instead of going, oh, that's stupid. Other people have it worse to, to say, no, that's real. And like bring that before God and, and whether that's praying a lament Psalm, whether that's just being in silence, whether that's like 
being like, I'm going to, I'm going to like take an hour every few weeks during COVID and just let myself be as sad as I want about this and, and meet the Lord in that and journal about that, um, without having to qualify or, um, then I think, I think that we need practices like that, that slow us down, that get us silent and let the loss and grief that we're experiencing come to the surface and not try to bat it away. Cause I really do believe like that's a place Jesus is seeking us. That's mm. a place where God is meeting us and it shows truth about who we are. It shows truth about the vulnerability and brokenness of our life. And that can be balanced. I talk about weeping and I talk about watching, which is sort of like watching where God is at work, practicing gratitude, looking for beauty. And so I think we can hold both. Like, I think that you can hold, like, I'm so grateful that I'm alive. I'm so grateful for the good things um, that God has done this year. And I'm deeply grieving the losses because they're both true. Like we live in the already, not yet. And we need to honor the already. And we need to honor the not yet in our spiritual life and in our emotional life. I wonder if by way of conclusion, if you could read or pray the prayer that your book is based upon uh, for us. Yeah, sure. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. Amen. Tish, thanks so much. The book is Prayer in the Night. It's wonderful. I hope that uh, you all will read it. Thanks for joining us, Tish. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Man, what a great conversation with Tish. If you'd like to continue learning from Tish, I encourage you to get a copy of her new book, Prayer in the Night. In fact, we want to make that easy for some of you to do by giving away five copies of the book. In order to enter the drawing, all you need to do is to subscribe to the podcast. You can also get additional entries by leaving a review, sharing the episode, or following us on Twitter. And all of the links should be found in the episode description, and the contest will run for two weeks. Also, since this is the inaugural episode, we wanted to chat with the director of the Andreas Center, Shannon Vischer, about the plan for the podcast. I'm joined now by Dr. Shannon Vischer, who is professor of chemistry and planetary sciences at Dort, and he's also the director of the Andreas Center. Shannon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Justin. What is the Andreas Center, and what's your vision for the center? Yeah, the Andreas Center for Scholarship and Service is a part of Dort University, and it's really a center that's dedicated to thinking about how Christian scholarship interacts with both the academy, but also with with the broader community. And by broader community, that includes uh, our churches, our supporting churches, our alumni, our constituents, and of course, uh, the faculty and staff at Dort University. So really a major vision of the center is to be thinking about uh, what does reformed scholarship look like? Uh, what does it look like to take seriously the fact that we live in a physical creation, that we live as humans in, in society, in a culture, as followers of Christ? It's really kind of connecting uh, kind of at the crossroads of the academy with the community and the church and, and what that looks like for 
uh, bringing our faculty scholarship to these surrounding communities. So some of our listeners are not, maybe would not describe themselves as reformed. Uh, will there be any benefit to them tuning in to the content that we're providing? I would certainly think so. Uh, it's really about, as I said, thinking about the implications of a faithful life lived intentionally, thoughtfully. So much of this, I think, of what a lot of what drives the work that we do uh, in the Andreas Center, and also as we see in In All Things, is the intentional act of paying attention to the world around us, whether that's the culture that we live in, whether that's the creation that we live in and explore. And, and what does that look like as a Christian? How does a Christian imagination shape the way in which we encounter these things? What insights does our faith bring to our interaction? Action with culture, with creation, with society. Yeah, I love that. You know, one of the things that we say about In All Things is that it's diverse voices across a, a breadth of Christian traditions. And uh, we're attending to the, the voices of the larger church, even though we're coming from a place of uh, a reformed tradition. But our hope is, of course, that the content that we provide through In All Things is beneficial to uh, all sorts of listeners, not just those in the reformed world. But we do have sort of this reformed, uh, or as we like to say here, reformational lens that we are trying to see the world through. And um, we already have an online a journal called In All Things, but now we're starting a podcast. So why are we starting a podcast? That's a very, I guess, 2020 thing to do, a 2021 thing uh, to do. Uh, what's the idea behind the podcast that we're starting? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it, in part, it is uh, a 2020 thing. Uh, it's it's an area that has a very uh, easy entry. And uh, really, primarily, I'd say uh, our interest in this is as a way to continue the conversation in, in new ways to expand upon the work that In All Things is already doing. So, you know, a big part of what we see in In All Things are these generally shorter essays, uh, which offer insights into various topics and book reviews, uh, devotional pieces. I think having a podcast format really allows for us to expand upon and build upon uh, those conversations that are already happening and, and actually turning toward actual conversations uh, with authors, uh, with scholars, with people working in ministry to be unpacking, you know, again, what does it look like as we think about how um, the Christian life uh, interacts with these various topics? Yeah, that's great. I love the idea of continuing the conversation. And we actually are able to actually have conversations with many of the authors whose books we're reviewing and uh, some of the people who are writing articles for us as well. There's just so much good and important work being done. And so I just hope that through the podcast, we can highlight some of the work that's being done uh, in a way that is really complementary to what we're providing um, through the online journal. Is there a way that our listeners can follow uh, what's happening with In All Things? Yeah, the best way they can uh, stay up to date on In All Things is at our website, inallthings.org. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, just search for In All Things. Uh, you'll see an icon that just says all uh, on Twitter. And that's where we'll be posting updates if, if new uh, pieces are posted, whether that's a review, an essay, or devotional. And also uh, podcasts will be announced there as well. That's great. It sounds really exciting. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I'm looking forward to these conversations. I'm really excited about uh, some of the authors that I've seen uh, coming up on the list already. And so, yeah, just really looking forward uh, to these new ways that we can continue to wrestle and explore uh, these ideas and, and really thinking about how we can engage the world as followers of Christ. Thanks so much, Shannon.
Good talking to you. Thank you. Next time on the In All Things podcast, we are talking with acclaimed artist Makoto Fujimura about his new book, Art and Faith. Here's a sneak peek. So the discipling imagination may be, um, you know, just being a child of God, you know, mm-hmm. and, and having a community that says, wow, you made something, you know, that is beautiful, has no intrinsic purpose whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't make a living doing this, um, you know, and there's no, like, um, even in terms of the power base that you're building in the world or resume uh, doesn't make sense. And praise God, you know, like why? That's 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 beautiful. And and that kind of uh, attitude of, you know, trying to frame our children to keep their imagination alive. When, if you're not making something, you become consumers. And typically, what happens is if you're not making something out of love, you become consumed by fear. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Shannon Bisher, Emily Rowe, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.